From the Center for the History of Business, Technology, and Society at the Hagley Museum and Library, this is Stories from the Stacks. Each episode, we share new discoveries in the history of American enterprise and its impact on the world, made by researchers using our collections. So my name is Bernie Carlson, and I teach at the University of Virginia, and Although I'm a historian, I work primarily for the School of Engineering and Applied Science there, and I run the non-technical unit that is called Engineering and Society. And the interesting thing that I get to do is not only do I study entrepreneurs and inventors, but I am trying to prepare the next generation to be innovative and entrepreneurial. My visit here is to begin developing a new book on the early automobile industry, which will focus on the tycoon who you have never heard of named William C. Durant. And Durant was the founder of General Motors. Many people know that General Motors was created in 1908, the same year that Henry Ford introduced the Model T. And so my interest is, is in looking at Durant and saying, is there another kind of story different than the story of Ford and the Model T that we ought to tell about the automobile industry? Well, that story is, is this is that we often, if you're a history teacher, you, you basically, you get to that point in the, in the semester and you, you, you do two lectures on the auto industry. Lecture A is Henry Ford, the Model T, mass production, and uh, the $5 day. And it is a story of production. And you focus on how Ford basically figures out how to make millions and millions of automobiles. Lecture two is almost always in the 1920s and 1930s. And it, it, the, the, the star of that show is, is a man named Alfred P. Sloan. And you talk about General Motors. And you talk about the idea that you should uh, an automobile company is going to produce a car for, as, as Sloan liked to say, for every pocketbook and every purse. In other words, there's cheap cars, there's medium-priced cars, and there's expensive cars. What's missed there is, 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 is that there were a lot of choices and a lot of risks taken by people um, in the 19, from the 1900s to the 1940s in trying to figure out how the automobile industry was going to work out. And we tend to tell the story as an, a story of a sort of unfolding inevitability. And Durant screws that plan up because Durant basically is an individual who shows up with his own set of ideas and his own strategies and is basically going toe-to-toe with Ford throughout his almost his entire career. And he shows us that there are multiple paths kind of through the, the, through the automobile industry, multiple paths by which you might make money. And the question is, is why does Durant pick the path that he picks? When is it successful? When is it not successful? My visit here is to begin developing a new book on the early automobile industry, which will focus on the tycoon who you have never heard of named William C. Durant. And Durant was the founder of General Motors. Many people know that General Motors was created in 1908, the same year that Henry Ford introduced the Model T. And so my interest is, is in looking at Durant and saying, is there another kind of story different than the story of Ford and the Model T that we ought to tell about the automobile industry? Well, that story is, 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 is that we often, if you're a history teacher, you, you basically, you get to that point in the, in the semester and you, you, you do two lectures on the auto industry. Lecture A is 
Henry Ford, the Model T, mass production, and uh, the $5 day. And it is a story of production. And you focus on how Ford basically figures out how to make millions and millions of automobiles. Lecture two is almost always in the 1920s and 1930s. And it, it, the, the, the star of that show is, is a man named Alfred P. Sloan. And you talk about General Motors. And you talk about the idea that you should uh, an automobile company is going to produce a car for, as, as Sloan liked to say, for every pocketbook and every purse. In other words, there's cheap cars, there's medium-priced cars, and there's expensive cars. What's missed there is, 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 is that there were a lot of choices and a lot of risks taken by people um, in the 19, from the 1900s to the 1940s in trying to figure out how the automobile industry was going to work out. And we tend to tell the story as an, a story of a sort of unfolding inevitability. And Durant screws that plan up because Durant basically is an individual who shows up with his own set of ideas and his own strategies and is basically going toe-to-toe with Ford throughout his almost his entire career. And he shows us that there are multiple paths kind of through the, the, through the automobile industry, multiple paths by which you might make money. And the question is, is why does Durant pick the path that he picks? When is it successful? When is it not successful? And this reflects some of the stuff that I've learned by being here for the past few weeks at Hagley, is is this is that we start out by thinking about the that the that the industry before the automobile industry is 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 the carriage industry. People that make wagons and they make buggies and they make carriages and they're draw, they're horse drawn, and we initially think that that you know where the automobile historians would have you think that oh well. This is, this, is, this is an industry that's on its last legs. I mean, imagine a, an industry that has separate companies that make whip sockets where you park your whip while you're you know, riding in the carriage, you know, that you need that. And so there's this whole notion that the, the, that the, the carriage industry is going away. Okay, and that these the, the carriage industry is sort of like the dinosaurs, and the dinosaurs know that the meteor is coming and it's going to wipe them out. So somehow these carriage this carriage industry thinks, oh well, you know, we're just you know we're just waiting, we're looking at our watches, and is it is it 1905 yet? Is it 1910 yet? It's 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 time to disappear. It's time to go extinct. And in the industry, if you look at the trade journals is is as dynamic and as innovative and they're looking at new materials and they're looking at new designs and they're they're thinking about new production methods and and I'd be hard pressed that if you didn't know the difference between that you're looking at a carriage industry journal or you're looking at an electrical industry journal and I spent most of my career before this looking at the electrical industry there's the difference between these two journals isn't a whole lot now why am I telling you all this is 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 that there's a clue when the first automobiles are produced that they are horseless carriages okay because that's actually what people in the beginning Henry Ford or Durant or my man David Buick before 1905 really think that they're producing is this is, is they're going to take a wagon and they're going to take a gasoline powered engine and they're going to bolt the two together and they're going to be done Okay, and the interesting thing about the carriage, the, the, the automobile industry is, 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 is it is not simply grafting this gasoline engine onto an existing carriage. You have to rethink actually both pieces. You have to rethink the, the engine 
and you have to rethink the carriage. The earliest engines, just to kind of put a, fi a final point on this is, is the earliest engines were like 10 horsepower. Now, other than the 40 mule team, when have you ever seen 10 horses pulling a signal, single wagon? And the, and the issue is, is this is imagine you have all of the force, all of the energy, all the force in those, those 10 horses pulling one wagon. What's gonna happen to the wagon? Well, that wagon is not going to belong for this world. I say unto you. So that's the that is the technological one of the technological challenges in this early industry is is this is, is you're not pretty quickly you're not making horseless carriages. You're making something different, and that difference is something that we have to get, as, as Edison would like to say, our intellectual grippers on. One of the things that, that I am fascinated by, and I'm not sure what I'm gonna do about this, is the fact that n the numbers vary from, who you, from whom you ask, but in very round numbers, there have probably been in the history of the American automobile industry, 1,800 different car companies, most of whom existed before 1920. Okay, so you have you have an enormous amount of ferment and and rapid change in this industry. Um, some of it's low barriers to entry. It's easy to get into. It's easy to start making a car. But part of it is 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 is, is that people had all sorts of ideas as to what kind of car to make, how to make the car, how to sell the car. And I would argue, and I have to, I, I want to. It's not not something I'm working on right now, but I, I want to get, it's a pretty easy thing to get a handle on the comparative numbers, but I suspect that relatively speaking, the, you know, if you were to ask, you compare the numbers of dot-com startups and the number of, co of companies in the, in the auto industry in and around, in round numbers, 1900 to 1920, you were talking, we're talking on a similar scale. So, you know, so the auto industry is the first high-tech industry with a degree of innovation and a lot of a lot of players uh, that you have in the 20th century and and that's that's an interesting thing and Durant is is one of the more he comes up with a strategy to thread through all of that complexity and find a way to to build General Motors which becomes one of the most powerful companies in in American history in the 20th century and this is this is this is a big part of why why I, why I am here at the Hagley is to is to is to is partly to, to understand that strategy. So I think Durant's game plan is, and it, let me start by by talking a little bit about the very first company that he had in 1886. He's a drop. He's born in Flint, Michigan. He's born in Boston, but he moves as a child to Flint, Michigan. And in Flint, Michigan, he goes to Flint High School, and, and about a month before he's supposed to graduate from high school, he walks home to his mother and he says, I'm not going back to school. I'm going, to I'm going into business. And he goes into business, um, and he does a number of different things. He sells cigars. He works in a drugstore. He works in a hardware store. He works in the local, his, his uncle's lumberyard. Um, and, uh, and one day he decides that he's going to put together, he, he scrapes together a thousand bucks. His best friend, a man named J. Dallas Dort, scrapes up the other thousand dollars, and they buy the rights to a patent for manufacturing a, a, a basically a two, a, a single, what they called road cart, which was kind of, if you've ever gone to uh, harness races and you've seen the sulky, imagine that. So it's a very small, and, and essentially it was at that time probably the equivalent of a young man of a young man's sports car, 
Okay, because you know you could go very fast, you could race these things, but it also meant that you didn't have to ride a horse. And if you were a young man looking to get married, they were all two seaters, so you could you know go and take you know the girl next door out for a ride. So anyhow, he he basically goes into the business. Now, what has he got there? He's got a great he he has a great vehicle. He couples that with the fact that he then goes Durant goes talks to all the local manufacturers that are making in Flint, Michigan other carriages and so he picks up on and he learns how to build a whole network of suppliers so he's not a master craftsman where he builds the 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 carriage from the you know first the wheels then the axles then the body and then paints the body and you know is he's not a master craftsman he assembles these little road carts by buying parts from all the other local companies so he's got a great his strategy is he's got a great vehicle he's got a network of suppliers um, and then he aggressively markets this thing and in in, in particular he goes um, to uh, to state fairs and the, at the end of this the, the state fairs are often at the end of the summer close to the harvest se- harvest season and so the farmers there have a pretty good idea whether they've got money to invest in new carriages or wagons or farm implements and so he basically takes advantage of that existing network um, and to raise more money, he b- basically follows what we what we tell our students today in entrepreneurship is you get your first money uh, from friends, fr- friends, families, and fools. And he does the same thing in Flint, Michigan. In other words, he raises money by borrowing it uh, from the you know from the you know the friends he has in the business world. And so that's that's his strategy. Now the difference is 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 is, is Ford basically decides that he's going to manage the risk of making automobiles because he's going to eventually do Ford starts by assembling them the same way but he pretty quickly decides that I am going to I'm going to make everything under one roof in other words that you know the ultimate fully vertically integrated company and Durant's idea is this is no I have a network of suppliers I have a network of companies that provide the different parts and I orchestrate this and indeed you, if you look across the landscape of of the Midwest today, you know countless small town, medium sized to medium sized towns to you know small cities, all have or had their GM supplier. You know one place made brake parts, another place made bodies, another place made you know steering systems, um, and that is that's a legacy to, of a very real extent of Durant's vision of how you were going to make automobiles. Mentioned a little while ago, General Motors. Founded in in 1908, um, and and Durant at that point basically has has built up the Buick Company. He then merges with uh, Oldsmobile. Uh, a few years, a, a little while later, he he basically brings Cadillac into the into the fold. Uh, he's doing pretty well. He actually brings in another 20 companies. Okay, many of which have gone gone into into the ether. They are so obscure that even the outstanding Vincent collection here, uh, which which I'm just about to start in on, in some cases has brochures from these companies. And in other cases, these companies are so obscure that even Z. Taylor Vincent couldn't find stuff about them. So uh, so anyhow, but he, he basically brings all of these companies together. You know, the, the big ones are Buick, Oldsmobile, Cadillac, a bunch of others, um, and he keeps growing. And about 1910, he's he's thinking, I want to bring Ford in, and and I want to keep growing. I need about 15 million dollars. And the bankers, East Coast bankers, say, 
No, because they think the automobile industry is a fad. They think this is this is going to come and go, which is another piece. Is is, is 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 frankly, we always think that bicycles kind of take off and they stay steady, and that they kind of set the stage for the automobile industry. If you're standing around in 1908, there's been a bicycle fad that's come and gone. Okay, so the, there's a reason to think that this 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 technology might have its moment and then go away. Okay, so that's what the bankers are thinking in 1910. Essentially, they won't give Durant the money and let him run the company. So they wrest control of the company away from him in 1910, and it's controlled by a syndicate of Boston bankers. Okay, so Durant goes away, and he does what he thinks he ought to do, which is he's going to create another car company. So he finds another ingenious mechanic named Louis Chevrolet. And basically, Louis Chevrolet makes for him a car called the 490. Now, the 490 is designed to go toe-to-toe with Henry Ford's Model T. It's called the 490 because the Model T, when they're planning this, is now 1913, 1914, um, costs $500. And so they are going to be, and they advertise it, and Durant makes a big deal, and he says, I'm going to be $10 cheaper than, than, than the Model T, okay? You can guess what Ford did. As, as they got just to the point where they put the, the 490 into production and were selling it, Ford dropped the price you know, of the Model T. Just, so it was just below. But the reason why Ford and Chevrolet, we see them as being competitors unto this day. I mean, I don't know about your small town, but my small town in Virginia, you were either a Ford man or you were a Chevrolet man. And you, you know, these, are, these are two different universes. Okay, but this is where it goes back to. Okay, so Chevrolet, even though you know it, it, it doesn't completely replace the Model T, but it basically competes with it, allows Durant to basically build up um, a, a very big company very quickly. And using that, he is, has a platform whereby he basically buys up stock in General Motors very quietly and in 1915 takes the company back from the bankers. Now, enter stage left, John J. Raskob and Pierre S. DuPont. Okay, it's World War I. The DuPont company is, is making a ton of money on explosives that they are and munitions that they're selling to the Allies. And so Raskob and Pierre say, what are we gonna do with all this money? And they do two things. They invest in diversifying DuPont into a chemicals industry or a chemicals business. And they say, let's, enter, let's invest money in the next up-and-coming high-tech industry. Okay, they're a high-tech industry. So what's another high-tech industry? It's automobiles. Now, there are some people that say, and the U.S. government, I have learned this this week, can you believe it that the DuPonts bought into into General Motors because they thought that they were going to sell artificial leather and chemicals and Duco paints and that they were going to do this solely so that they had a captive customer in General Motors. I do not believe this is true. Despite what the federal government accused them of doing in 1951, I cannot emphasize that one should be suspicious of that whole <laughs> line of thinking. Because to go back, what I think is important is, 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 is that Pierre and Raskob were looking to diversify the DuPont company and the DuPont family portfolio, okay? 
And they looked around and they saw that they could basically start buying into General Motors. And by by the end of World War One, now we're up to 1918, they have a substantial piece of of controlling stock in General Motors. Now, Durant is a fellow who has basically he's he, he, this is a guy that has has basically built up a company, got it taken away from him. And, and recaptured it, okay? So he's, 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 he's a Steve Jobs-like character. This is somebody who's always going to make a comeback, and he's always going to be on top. So the DuPonts, by this time, are basically, you know, what are they doing at home in Wilmington? They are rationalizing their whole operation. They are, they are hiring engineers. They are hiring scientists to create new products. They are paying attention to reducing costs of materials and processes, and, and they are creating a rational management organization. Okay? They look at DuPont. The, the, the DuPont people, Pierre, Raskob, all the way down the line, look at GM and they sort of say, you know, and they, I'm about now to crack my knuckles and say, right! We are going to rationalize General Motors. Now, my friends, nobody, if I were Billy Durant, here's what I'd be saying. I'd say nobody rationalizes Billy. This is my company, and I'm going to run it the way I want to run it, even though we're talking about a company that's now on the order of like a half a billion dollars. Durant basically has let the company do what it wants to do. Right after World War I, everybody, all of his, comp- all of his car divisions, again, Buick, Chevrolet, Oldsmobile, and Cadillac, and a bunch of others that we're not even going to talk about now, um, including including tractors and refrigerators. Okay, every every division of General Motors basically says we're going to expand, and so we're going to buy lots and lots of uh, parts and raw materials, and we're going to be ready to pump out automobiles and tractors right, left, and center. Okay, well, there's a recession in 1920. The economy doesn't it goes through a post-war contractual adjustment and the and the economy basically slows down um and general motors cannot sell as many cars as it should be selling and so the price of general motors stock begins to go down now here's where the story gets kind of interesting but a little bit complex what did durant think he was doing durant begins to buy up stock on wall street for general motors um, to prop up the price. Now, he's propping up the price because, again, he's taking care of those friends and family that invested in the company. He's also propping up the price because he wants to be in a better position when the economy turns positive again and the company's starting to manufacture it. Or, door number three, Durant's doing it because nobody's going to rationalize Billy Durant. And he wants to, just like in 1915, in 1920, Durant wants to basically gain control and get out from under potential control by the DuPonts. Therein lies a story of financial adventures that requires spending quality time in the archives to understand what we do can and cannot know about about that. And so that's why I have spent weeks in the soda house, uh, as, as I like to say, reading dead people's mail. And I am indeed doing doing the, the classic thing, which is I am following the money. I am here. I am here to follow the DuPont money. Thank you for listening to Stories from the Stacks. For more information on the Center for the History of Business, Technology, and Society, and the Hagley Museum and Library, visit us online at hagley.org. That's H-A-G-L-E-Y dot O-R-G.